Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. It's good to see everybody. Uh, wanted to just bring a report uh, from Columbia. Let me see if I got any other notes. No, you know what? We don't have anything else going here this morning other than preaching the word. So I told them, let's go a little longer in worship this morning. Isn't that good? Give Jesus his due. That is an appropriate thing to do, especially on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, we got back uh, Monday night about midnight. We got up about 4.30 in the morning and got taken to the airport there in Bogota and made it back. And uh, had a great time. Uh, we were, uh, the church there, Templo Belen and Medellin, uh, sends their greeting. Uh, Isai and Natalia are the pastors. They were with us either last year or the year before for missions convention. They pastor a wonderful church there. And uh, so we went there uh, the first half of the week and ministered in the, some of their churches. They've got about 25 different churches that are under their banner. And then, uh, then we went into Bogota and did a pastor's conference uh, for one church that has a, a bunch of different outstation churches. And uh, God just showed up. It was, it was amazing. And I'll tell you a little about that in a minute. But uh, one of the places we went in Medellin was, uh, it's called Comuna Tresa. I think I just said it the right way. Uh, it's community, is it, did I say it right, Nora? Tresi. Comuna Tresi. There we go. I got, my, I got a little bit of squeal here. Uh, Comuna Tresi. And uh, it is, that stands for Community 13. It's a world-famous neighborhood in Medellin, uh, which was once arguably the most dangerous city in the world, and it was the most dangerous area of the most dangerous city in the world because it was, it was the, uh, the inlet from the mountainous region into Medellin, uh, where Pablo Escobar trafficked drugs out of there. And uh, so this was a... Uh, it was literally a war zone. Hundreds of people lost their lives there in that neighborhood. Uh, and the official narrative is that it's cleaned up and it's now uh, a safe place. But truth be told, it's, it's a very touristy, rich area. With, there's a lot of well-known graffiti. People come from all over the world to, to look around there. But at night, it's a very dangerous place. Uh, the last time we were there, we connected with a, a couple that moved from New York. Uh, the wife was the executive pastor at an AG church out in New York. And the husband, he's a big old lug of a dude, Filipino dude. Uh, his, his calf muscles were bigger than my thighs. Big old guy. Uh, so he's a good friend to have in that neighborhood. Uh, they, they uprooted, took their three teenagers and moved right into that that area to minister and started what's called House of Hope. And so we went there to, to uh, partner with them and uh, God just showed up an amazing way. Now, Isai and Natalia's church, Templo Belen, has a, uh, a daughter church in that area that was started by a guy some 35 years ago. Uh, the church has a terrible name because uh, of the sexual indiscretions of the founding pastor. But they came in to rescue that thing and said, we're going to pour money and care into you for a year. And then you can decide if you want to go on your own, we'll help you find a pastor if you want to become part of us. And uh, they voted in Natalia as their pastor. And uh, just, a, just an interesting thing there, this, this really rough area. Uh, so she has this small group of young uh, teenagers. They were probably about 12 to 15 years old, most of them. And uh, these kids were hard. Uh, we, we started praying and they were just mocking each other, putting their hands in each other, ooh, you know, mocking each other. And so finally Christopher, he's preaching in Spanish. I can't understand a thing he's saying. And uh, so Christopher said, I found out later, he said, I want to give you a hug from the Father. And I uh, just started ministering to these kids. Meanwhile, there's this young man, Santiago. Uh, I believe he was 17, was it 17 years old, Madeline? Was he 17? And uh, this family that moved from New York, he is dating one of their daughters. Now, I'm praying, God, protect this girl. You know, this kid does not know the Lord, but was so hungry for a family. Found out later that his father had abandoned him, his mother had abandoned him. He's being raised by his grandmother. And when this American couple opened this ministry, he would just sit outside on the stair. And they said, come on in, eat some pizza with us, play Uno with us. And 
Uh, so he just jumped in. Well, I watched how he interacted with the other kids. And uh, so I just, I didn't have anything else to do because Christopher's speaking in Spanish. I couldn't understand him. I said to his girlfriend, I said, tell him he's a born leader. I've been watching him. And uh, when she told him that, he looked at me. And I said, do you realize you're a born leader? And he looked at me and just started weeping. Tears just started coming. He looked at his feet and said, no. And uh, God just penetrated his heart. So I just began to prophesy over him. And about that time, Christopher said, come on up here. And uh, gave him a hug and boom, he went out in the spirit. Power of God came on him. The other kids are like, why is he sleeping? <laughs> then they all wanted some and God just moved powerfully. Kids laid out just weeping and, and uh, I watched these hardened young men. Now, I found out later they were 12 and 13 years old. But they were hard kids and I just watched them melt in the presence of the Lord, just weeping. And, and uh, it was just a beautiful thing to just watch God enter. And I got a, a week later when I got home, I got a, a text from Pastor Natalia with a video from these kids just thanking us for coming. And uh, so I want you to be praying for Comuna Trece. Uh, God's going to move in that community. Uh, the next Tuesday I was ministering there. Uh, we had our first service at 6 a.m., uh, that's right, 6 a.m. And uh, then we drove over to that church and ministered again. And as I was there, I was shocked. The Lord spoke to me so clearly after the service. Uh, and the Lord told me, he said, I am not impressed with the darkness of this area. It's not that he was not only not intimidated, he was not impressed. And God is going to move powerfully in that community. He's been looking for a church that will establish a claim for that community. And so I want to encourage you, be praying. It's a world-famous neighborhood, famous for its history, but God's going to make it more famous for its destiny. And uh, so be praying for that church. Uh, we want to pour in. We do support uh, Ian and Jessica and their children as they've gone in there. Wonderful couple. So when they come back and itinerate, we'll have them in and... You'll, uh, you'll see how much Ian and I look alike. And uh, so, uh, so then we went into Bogota, did, did a, a pastor's conference there in that church. And uh, it was a wonderful time. Very limited amount of time. Usually we squeeze what we usually takes us five days and four to five sessions a day plus night services. And we did in about two and a half days. And, uh, but we've been praying to get into Bogota. I had really sensed that the Lord wants to open some things up. And so this was our first invitation to Bogota, the capital of the country. Now, this is an interesting city. In 2011, it was about 8 million people. Nora, I don't know if you know how, how much... Nora, where are you from? What, are you from Bogota? Okay. And uh, you need to go with us next time. You can show us around. And uh, so... This, this city, since 2011, which was about 8 million, has now grown to over almost 12 million in that amount of time. It's an, a, a huge, amazing sprawl of people without the infrastructure. I tell you what, if you're not saved, get in the traffic and you'll be saved by the time you arrive to church. You will be right with God. It is terrifying. Uh, I, I really wondered the first time we went to Columbia, we'd go into healing services and so many people were coming forward for, uh, you know, accidents, you know, wounding from motorcycle wrecks. And then I got into the traffic and I realized why. You, need, there, you, could, you could be a full-time healing evangelist just for motorcycle wrecks. But uh, God moved wonderfully. One night, uh, I, I forget what night it was. I, we were on Wednesday and I was thinking it was Sunday. Everything was just kind of a blur. But uh, we were uh, ministering and, and Christopher just declared, he said, there's a pool of the Father's wine up here. And uh, there was one pastor that was there and Christopher called him out to come forward and he hit the floor and just power of God hit him. He was just laughing. And later on, I found out he was the most sober, serious pastor that they had. And God chose him to break things open. And once it broke open, it broke open. And uh, so it was wonderful. So they've invited us back around March or May or something like that uh, to do a longer conference for, to gather more pastors. And so be praying about that. And uh, so, yeah, it was just, it was a wonderful trip. So we appreciate your prayers. And I understand I missed a couple of great messages back here. Armando hit a home run last week. And Kara, the little preacher girl, she, uh, I, I, I tell you, I could tell. We were sitting in my office, this was months ago, and I said, Kara, I want you to preach one of these Sundays. And, 
And uh, she's got the preacher in her, doesn't she? So everybody's like, Pastor, you can leave again if you want. Just head on out. But uh, I, I watched a little tiny bit online, and I'm going to watch the, the rest later. But uh, it was, I appreciate them filling in for me. So, all right. Well, the stage is, is in the process. This black hole behind me will not remain looking like this. There's a big curtain going to go up and new lighting up above. And, and uh, we're going we're gonna to have a much more creative looking setting here. Uh, so that, that's in the process. I appreciate Dan and his crew doing all the work. And they're just doing a great job. Okay, now into the word. Man, I didn't realize it was this late. Okay, here's uh, coming out of this pastor's conference. We, we, we usually go in and we, what we do is they, they call it the... Uh, Escuela Sobrenatural, the school of the supernatural. And uh, so it's, it's a pastor's conference, just training pastors to flow in spiritual gifts and cooperate with heaven. You know, uh, really three things. How do you attract? Are there things we as humans can do to attract God? Can we entice heaven? That's a big question for you this morning. Are there things that you can do? Can you posture your heart in such a way that you can attract the activity of heaven? I'm telling you, it's a resounding yes, you can. You gotta figure out if you believe that or not, but yes, you can. Then secondly, how do we cooperate with God as he works? And then how do we cultivate an environment that can create a sustainable culture how do we cultivate to create a culture that sustains the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit? And so those are the things we talk about. And so having gone into a new area, meeting a lot of pastors I've never met and coming off the heels of that teaching on that, I've been just mulling over these things again in my own heart since I've been home thinking about this. And then coming out of Thanksgiving, those two kind of things kind of dovetailed for me. So I just want to share some musings with you this morning. Some of the things I've been chewing on as I've been chewing on turkey and pumpkin pie. I've been chewing on some theological questions as well. So let's, uh, we're going to dive in. I don't know where we're going to pop out on the end, but we'll land it by noon. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your willingness to respond to us, Lord. God, we thank you that you are a benevolent God and that you, not, you are not arbitrary. That although you're mysterious, Lord, you long to bring us into the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. Amen. And so, Lord, we're asking this morning that you would do just that. Lord, give us a glimpse. Lord, help us to understand how we can attract heaven, how we can cooperate with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us start this morning with a very troubling verse, all right? I'd like to introduce questions or create trouble, and then we'll try to solve it by the time we land this this morning. This, this verse, Matthew 25, uh, verse 29, this is not the only place Jesus said this. It's a theme that he repeats a number of times in the Gospels. But listen to what he says here. For whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Just let that settle for a moment. Now, if that doesn't trouble you, at least at first reading, then you're not listening to what this verse just said. Scripture says, whoever has will be given more. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Jesus is dealing with the principle, giving us insight into how he operates in his relationship with man. And at first reading, again, that can be real offensive. And if, it almost sounds like the anti-Robin Hood, where God takes from the poor and gives to the rich. Now he's talking spiritually, but this spiritual principle has a wide application. This is part of the ways of heaven. One of the things I've really been thinking about this last week, chewing on this whole concept of knowing his ways. 
I mentioned it in my prayer this morning, but there are a lot of people who theologically think God is arbitrary. That God, there's, there's not really any, any reason that, uh, there's no explanation behind God's interaction with man other than in his own heart, his desire just to do what he wants to do. And so that creates this, this sense of uh, mystery and, and God is arbitrary. And what it does is it leaves us just responding to what he does. There's no initiation on our end. There's nothing we can do to attract heaven's attention under that type of theological view. But I'm here to tell you that there are things that you can do to engage heaven. There, are, there is the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom, as Jesus put it in Matthew 13. That God has his ways. It says of Moses that he showed his works to Israel, but he showed his ways to Moses. Psalm 25, David cries out and says, God, show me your ways. God would have never prompted David to, to voice that prayer unless it was possible to know his ways. I want you to think about that, that you can know the ways of God, not just what he does, but why he does it. What motivates God's heart? Because if you can know what motivates God's heart, you can posture your heart to motivate him. You can posture yourself so that you can attract heaven's activity. God is very, very relational. And he's looking to interact with man. And so there are things that we can do to engage heaven's activity. And when we realize that, we can begin to posture ourselves to really engage heaven. And not just be down here like it's some kind of mysterious thing. Now, God's a God of mystery on the one hand, but he's also a God of revelation on the other hand. We'll never plumb the depths of God's nature because he's infinite and we're finite. But that doesn't mean we can't know things about him. And the way we know things about him is through revelation. The revelation of scripture, but not just scripture, not just reading the Bible, but reading the Bible under revelation. The revelation of the spirit enlightening us about the revelation of the scriptures. And we can ask for that. We can say, God, I want to know your ways. I want to understand how you operate. And God loves when people ask those things. He wants to give us the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. So what is this deal that God says, to those who have, they'll be given more and they will have an abundance and to those who do not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. Well, the context of that is a passage we've looked at from different angles over the years. It's Matthew 25. Uh, in Matthew 24, Jesus says that this is, he talks about the end of the age. So these are teachings by Jesus on the end of the age, the last days. Now, we need to understand the last days started at Pentecost. Peter got up at Pentecost and said, this is that which was written this in, uh, in the last days I will pour out of my spirit and your sons and daughters shall, you know, on, on all flesh and so forth. He's saying that this was the fulfillment of this last day's passage. And so he's saying that at the end of the age, he's talking about the dynamics of the kingdom in Matthew 24 and 25. He gets into the, the ten virgins, you know, and, and uh, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. And then he comes to this parable about the master giving talents to his servants said there's a master going to go on a long journey, calls his servants together, and he gives to the one, he gives five talents, to another one, he gives three, and then to one, he gives one. And then it says he left. And immediately, the two first ones put their five and their three talents to work. And then the last one, it says he buried his talent. The master returns, and here's a frightening little passage, to settle accounts with his servants. Everything that God puts in you, exposes you to, you will give an account for. Everything that God invests in you, you will answer for at the end of the age. It's a sobering thing. But I would propose to you, he's not even talking about just at the end of the age. 
Because then that would have meant that his here that it would have been it wouldn't have made sense to his hearers. It was his return. So he's talking about visitation. God will come in visitation, and He will impart certain things to us. When God's presence shows up, there's things deposited into our lives. Whether it's his manifest presence or his omnipresence, when we gather in his name, we're two or three, and there's more than that here this morning, there he is in the midst of them. And something of himself is deposited to us, and we'll give an answer for those things. And it's a good thing for us to keep that in mind, that we're going to give an answer. What are we doing with what he gave us? And so the master returns and the one that was given five comes back and he says, Master, you gave to me five talents. You entrusted me. And look what I did. I multiplied it in your absence. And he said, he said well done, thou good and faithful servants. Put him over ten cities. I think I'm, I'm merging two different parables. But, uh, and then it, the, the one with the three does the same thing. He says, give him five. So, and then the one with the one comes. He said, I understood. I knew you were a hard taskmaster. You reap where you do not sow. You harvest where you cast no seed. So I buried it. Here's what you gave me. I used to say, I want to make sure I maintain what I obtain spiritually. I no longer say that. Because that's exactly what that guy did. He maintained what he obtained and got a stern rebuke from the master. The ones that were commended were those who multiplied in his absence what he gave them in his presence. We need to multiply what God has given us. We invest it. We put it to work. We, what God puts in us, we begin to put it to work. And in that way, that we multiply those things. Matter of fact, interestingly enough, he rebukes the one who buried the talent, and he says, you should, if you didn't have the faith to work with it, you should have at least invested it with the bankers. What does that mean? It means that you put it to use under the leadership of someone who understood the economics of the kingdom. You take your talent and submit it to somebody that knows how to use your talent. Now, that word talent is very uh, convenient for us as English-speaking people because we think of it as skills, and there is an application there. But talent was a form of money. But the application is whatever God gives you, you put it to work. And if you don't know how to, get under someone who does and submit whatever you have to their leadership so they can invest it for you. It's like I have a friend that used to say to me all the time, Dave, God has plans for you, and so do I. He had plans to put me to work. Get under somebody that has a vision for your talent until you have a vision for it yourself. Be it money or ability or whatever. Put it to work. And so here, this last one is rebuked. And it was on the heels of this thing that he makes this statement. Because he says, take from him what he had and give it to the one who made five more. So the one that made the most even got the one from the one who didn't invest what he had. It's a really troubling passage. But we must understand because this has to do with the ways of the kingdom. This is how God operates. God takes very serious when he makes an investment in a person's life. We are accountable for the truth that we have. We will stand before heaven for how we applied the truth that we have. Jesus said there are 30, 60, and 100-fold hearers. I want to be a 100-fold hearer, but man, at least be a 60-fold hearer. Take what you're learning and put it to work. And if you don't know how, get around someone who does and ask them questions. How do I use what God has put within me? Because there's coming a day where he is going, you are going to have to give an answer for what he put within you. So that's the context of this very troubling kingdom principle. That he who has will be given more. And he who does not have, even what he has, shall be taken from him. 
Now let's stop for a minute and listen to what he just said. How can you have something taken from you when you have nothing to take? He who does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. In other words, everybody has something, but if you act like you don't, your unbelief will betray you. And it wasn't just the unbelief about his own abilities, it was really the fruit of his belief about the master. The real issue here is our conviction about the nature of God himself. Your theology will always shape your identity. Listen to the insulting way that servant interacted with the master. I knew you were a hard taskmaster. You reap where you do not sow. You harvest where you cast no seed. You require things of me, but don't give me the grace to produce it. So therefore, I didn't invest what you put within my life. He had a lack of faith in his own ability, but the real issue was his lack of faith in the master. It was a very insulting thing to say. And there's something about this thing of look how we view God that will either freeze or flourish our gifting. There's something about people that are blessed and operate in the power of God that seems like they attract more blessing. You ever notice that? You ever notice it's the same people that are always prophesied over or the same people that are always being prayed over and getting blessed? Anybody ever felt that way or am I the only one? Yeah, okay, good. Just the two of us. <laughs> but seriously, I've looked at it and I thought, man, this, it's like the same people all the time. But one of the reasons for that is there is an openness of faith. in their, They are receptive because they believe something about the character of God. When you believe that God is good, see, the first two servants, their language revealed their heart. You entrusted me. They're saying, you are the all-wise master, and you invested some of your wealth in me. That was an entrustment. You know better than I do about my abilities. You entrusted me. They saw it as a vote of confidence, and they said, you're, you're smarter than I am. Therefore, I'm going to ride on your faith in regards to my ability, and I'm going to step out and use this stuff. But the last one, he said, you are a hard taskmaster. You reap where you do not sow and, and harvest where you cast no seed. You're hard-nosed. You want things from me. You didn't invest anything in me. And so I didn't produce. I want to ask you this morning, what is your view of God? Because that will have everything to do with the fruitfulness of your life and with your ability to actually attract heaven's activity, attract the blessings of God. Your theology can actually undermine your walk with God, let alone your ministry. Your theology will cause your, your gifting, your walk with him to flourish or it'll freeze it and cause it to wilt. And there are a lot of believers, their destination is heaven, but their walk with God this side of heaven is unfruitful, not because they're evil, not because they're pursuing sin, but because they have a diminished view of the goodness of God. For many years, I lived under this hard taskmaster mentality when it came to God. I didn't realize it. I, I'm not sure where I picked it up. Some of it I was overtly taught in Bible school. Some of it was kind of covertly picked up from other people's views, reading between the lines. But it froze me in my ability to step out with God. That's why encounters with God himself are so important. Because I'm reading the same Bible I did before. 
before I had encounters with the love of God back in the mid-90s? I've been serving Jesus almost 40 years. Before the mid-90s, I was reading the same Bible, but I saw different things. After the encounters, I, got, I had the same Bible. It's not like I got a new Bible, but I'm telling you, I got a new Bible. I saw things I never saw before because I had new eyes through which I was reading it. My belief in who he was and how he felt about me. God was undermining. He, would, he took the jackhammer of his love to the, the, the hardened cement of my, uh, my fallen ideas about him being a hard taskmaster. Bible study didn't do it. Now that helps. God can break in in your Bible study. Don't... don't don't get me wrong, but I'm telling you, there's something about encountering him that all of a sudden I'm reading the same scriptures and they came alive and I saw them from a whole different angle. Matter of fact, prior to that, what I believed, I used to preach this. I've had to repent about a lot of things I've preached. Oh, seriously, I've had to pray for the Teen Challenge students that I taught for many years. I used to preach that the primary message of Calvary was God's hatred for sin. That's, that's a secondary message, but it's not the primary message. The primary message is God's great value and love for man. God didn't send his son to the cross for sin as an end in itself. It was because sin stood between him and the thing he loved. So he eradicated the sin so he could get at the ultimate goal of being reconciled to the thing, his, his great delight, mankind. He, he did it out of love, not hatred for sin. But what had happened is I had this idea of God that I was, I was an afterthought. I was, I was made simply to be to feed his glory machine, to bring him glory, never realizing that the glory of God is the love of God. And God expresses his glory by loving fallen man while we were yet sinners. This changes everything. Now, let me read you something. So I've been thinking about this. over the last few days because it's Thanksgiving. Gratitude and ingratitude are to your history what hope and despair are to your destiny. Let me say it again. Gratitude and ingratitude are to your history, your past, what hope and despair are to your destiny. Ingratitude cries, there's nothing good in my past. Well, despair bemoans, there's nothing good in my future. Psychologically and spiritually, gratitude and hope are intimately connected. The same mindset that appreciates the positive in your past will naturally expect the same for your future. But the negative corollary is true as well. The mindset that refuses to acknowledge the positive things that have happened to you in the past will fail to recognize any possibility of it in the future, breeding despair. And again, this is true theologically and it's true psychologically. Both gratitude and hope as well as ingratitude and despair are mindsets as opposed to mere thoughts. Each become a lens through which we evaluate life. So I'm not talking about a momentary thing. There's, hey, not excusing it, but we all have our bad days and we, we get, you know, get sideways and we, we fail to see the blessings around us. But when that, mind, when that thought becomes a mindset, when it begins to settle in, when all we see is the negative, it will breed despair. Because when you fail to see the goodness of God in your past, you will not see it in the future. And what I'm proposing you to this morning is that that is rooted in your view of God. It's not your view of circumstances. That's just, that, that's the trail that leads back to the real issue. What is your theology? 
If you view God as a hard taskmaster, then all you'll see is the problems in your past and all you'll see is problems in your future. I know we've talked about this before, but I love C.S. Lewis's little teaching on this concept. He said that as we get closer to death, he said that eternity begins to break in and bleed through into time. He said so much so that the believer, at the, when he's on the threshold of eternity, ready to step into heaven, he looks back over his life, laying on his deathbed. He's looking back to all that ever happened to him, and he says, all I've ever known is heaven. Because heaven begins to cast a shadow, a hue over his life, and everything is turned into blessing, and it glistens. And then he says this, and the same is true of the unbeliever. As he gets towards the end of his life and hell begins to cross over the threshold and bleed over and cast a shadow over his life, he says, all I've ever known is hell. I remember my, my little sister, one time we were talking about somebody going through hardship and, and uh, she said, yeah, I don't know how people can go through it. She said, I've, I've really had a... You know, I've had a really good life and never really had, had to wrestle with those issues. And I kind of looked at her. It struck me. She's had such severe asthma. She was on a lung transplant list for decades. My mom and dad found her dead a couple of times. She was purple. And uh, they came when she wasn't breathing. They rushed her to the hospital. They got her going. And the, the nurses later on, we went to school with some of the nurses. Man, you were speaking in another language when they brought you out. And uh, she was just worshiping Jesus as she came out. She's, she's lived, she's a real fun person. She, she, because of her asthma, she starts laughing. She, she'll laugh like a horse. I mean, <laughs> and then she'll pass out because she can't get, and then you wake her up. Oh, did I pass out again? She'll start laughing again. She is one of the funnest people that I know. But it struck me that she looked at her life and evaluated and said, yeah, I've really had this charmed life. I haven't really had struggles. And it's because of the lens through which she looks at. Heaven has bled through already. And all she's ever known is heaven. But you talk to others, and every good thing that happens, it's corrupted by their complaining and their, their disgruntledness and their feeling like they're a victim and they've been robbed and they never get opportunities. Everybody else gets the blessings. And all they've ever known is hell, and they can create it for others. And so this thing of gratitude is a huge thing. It's not just, well, some people, it's a personality trait. It is one of the primary ways in which we can attract heaven's activity. Do you know that? There's a reason that we enter his gates with thanksgiving. That's not talking about a turkey leg in hand, okay? That's saying that we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It's when we focus, we get our vision, we get our eyes on him and all his glory and the goodness of who he is. And when we do that, we literally, we, in one sense, we step into his presence, but in another sense, he inhabits the praise. He, it attracts him. Suffice it to say, you will meet him there, Okay? That gratitude of heart. And it really does have to do with your view of God. So, both gratitude and hope, as well as ingratitude and despair, are mindsets as opposed to mere thoughts. Each become the lens through which we evaluate life. If you practice gratitude, you will inadvertently cultivate hope. You, won't, you don't even have to try to be hopeful. It happens. As you begin to evaluate your life and you count your blessings and you begin to rehearse all the goodness of God in your past, I'm telling you, you begin to look at your future and your hopes are up. Because the same God of my history is the God that's leading me into my destiny. And if he's a good God in my past, I can't help but have hope for my future. However, if I have a view of God as a hard taskmaster who's never done me right, he's always blessing everybody else but not me, then I'm going to take that lens. We cannot help but look at our life through our theological lenses. 
Even if your theology is atheism, you will look through those lenses and they will color your world. And if we look at God as a hard taskmaster, we look at our future and there's despair. So this thing of thanksgiving and gratitude is a huge element of the Christian life. And it's not something, there are times where we give the sacrifice of praise, okay? There are times where we don't feel like worshiping and, uh, you know, the old saying that when you feel like going to church the least is the time you need to go the most. When you feel like worshiping the least is the time you need to do it the most. That's true. But if you're always having to white knuckle it and, and there's something that needs to be adjusted in your theology, you need to see him for who he is. And when you see him for who he is, worship becomes the spontaneous reciprocal response to his goodness. And I'm telling you that that will unlock the activity of heaven in your life. You will automatically attract heaven and you will begin to partner with heaven because you'll see it all around you. Just like I have the same Bible before God ministered to me and after God ministered to me, but I saw different things in those Bibles. Why? Because my lens of how I saw him changed and when I looked at his word, I saw different things. So this discipline of gratitude needs to become a mindset born of a revelation of who he is. And if you look at God as a hard taskmaster this morning, if there's any residue of that, you just need to lay that before him and say, God, I'm asking you, go to war against this thing because I see you wrongly. Lord, I'm asking you to reveal yourself to me. Again, God is mysterious, but he, it's his good pleasure to reveal to us the mystery. It's the way that God, we don't have time to get into this this morning, but one of the primary ways in which God governs his universe, one of the primary ways in which God administrates things, and you even see this in Ephesians through Paul. He talks about the administration of God's grace and how he was given an administration or a stewardship. He was given the responsibility to administrate the grace of God, to be a governor, to, uh, to hand it out to others. All of that has the idea that it's tied in with revelation. Paul was saying that the revelation given to me was for the administration of his grace. So the way that God governs is two ways. He reveals, or he conceals, and he reveals. He has mysteries, and he has revelation. If you don't bump into mysteries when you read your word, you're not really reading the word. And believe me, we, we, we've all read the word and you've sat there for 10 minutes and then you think, I have no idea what I just read. I was thinking about the TVs on sale at Costco or whatever, you know, fill in the gap. But if you don't run into mysteries, if there, there's not things that snag you and think, that just seems like it can't be right. But I know I'm, God's right and I'm wrong, so Lord, you've got to explain it. Matter of fact, the greatest treasures where your interpretation of reality and God's interpretation of reality cross, X marks the spot of the greatest treasures. If you will press in and say, God, I don't understand. Matter of fact, my, my conviction is that when you bump into those things, God's revealing to you something that is going to trouble you and be a burr under your saddle precisely because he wants to reveal something to you. And so don't be apathetic and just say, well, it's a mystery. God's mysterious. He's arbitrary. We can never know. No. God loves to give revelation. He longs to give us insight. Matthew 13, he teaches in the parables and the disciples say, Jesus, why are you teaching in parables? He said, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given unto you, but not to them. You cross-reference the, the parables of Matthew 13 with, I think it's Mark 8 and Luke 4, no, Mark 4 and Luke 8, whatever. It says they had no clue what he was saying here. They said, Jesus, what are you talking about? So it wasn't that they were just enlightened by nature. 
because they were sovereignly chosen. It was because they asked. Everybody else walked out and said, I don't understand what a word he said. And the disciples stayed around and said, Jesus, what are you talking about? And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. Then he explains it. God longs to reveal his revelation to us. Your hunger will entice him and attract him. But hunger without faith in his goodness will breed despair. Let me say it again. If you're hungry for the things of God, but you're not convinced in his willingness to give it to you, it'll breed despair. And faith without hunger will breed apathy. There are a lot of believers who believe in the goodness of God, but they're just apathetic about it. And they're not going to get revelation. They're not going to go from glory to glory. They're not going to go deeper in God because they're content not to. But when we couple those two things, God, I'm hungry. I want to understand you. And Lord, I know my, my thing is hunger, but I know on your side there's a willingness because God is good. When those two things, when heaven and earth kiss, there's revelation and we can actually attract heaven. And I'm telling you, God will take us from glory to glory. I don't know about you, but I want to be one of those people that's blessed. I want to be one of those people that walk with God. I don't want to leave anything on the table. There's more revelation. I don't want it to be said at the end of my life. Dave, remember what he said to his disciples? There was so much more I wanted to give you, but you couldn't handle it. I'm like, Lord, then make me handle it, whatever I got to go through. And I kind of know what I'm saying. Sometimes that means you're going to go through some fire, but I'm telling you, I've never had a revelation that wasn't worth it. But we've got to be convinced of his goodness to say that. Let me read just a couple more things. We gotta land this. I made a commitment. I don't want to be a liar. Okay, if you practice gratitude, you will inadvertently cultivate hope. Put on the lens of thankfulness, it is the key to seeing the blessings that lie in your future. Let me say it again. If you practice gratitude, you will inadvertently cultivate hope. Put on the lenses of thankfulness. They are the key to seeing the blessings that lie in your future. Gratitude and hope are both rooted in the goodness of God. The conviction that God's character is benevolent and kind and actively involved in rewarding those who do right and punish those who do wrong. Hebrews 11, when it talks about faith, it gives two criteria. All who have faith must believe that he exists. I mean, that's pretty much a criteria. You can't have faith in God unless you believe he exists. But the other one is that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That's interesting. I want you to think about that. Faith at its foundation is the conviction that God is a rewarder. Now, that can smack of works. Well, Lord, wait, wait a minute. You mean there's things I can do to qualify for reward? Yes. The rewarder of who? Those that diligently seek him. What would the reward of diligently seeking him be? The one you're seeking, to know him. The reward of diligently seeking him is that God will reveal himself to you. He longs to do so. Let me close with this thought. Stand so you know I'm going to quilt. Close. I've been thinking about this, and I've mentioned this before, but I've been revisiting it all over again. There's something, word of faith theology. How many of you know what I mean by word of faith? Raise your hand. Yeah, a bunch of you. See, you're kind of attracted to this church. There's a reason. Word of faith theology and kingdom theology arrive at the same destination from slightly different scriptures. Bill Johnson is someone I think of when I think of kingdom theology. I'm, when I'm talking about, when I'm using that kind of phrase, we've got to define our terms. I'm talking about the revivalism of Bill Johnson and people like him. It's not a coincidence he wrote a book called simply this, God is good. Because 
Word of faith theology has a conviction that God is good. That's the foundation of it. I remember talking with Bob Phillips one time, and Bob was a, a, a brilliant theologian. I don't know that we really realized the treasure we had in this house when Bob was with us. Bob had two academic master's degrees in theology. Not, not your, you know, not a, it was, it was an academic research degree. He had two of them. Well, you know, read Greek. Guy was brilliant. One time he was on a radio program and someone pressed him and said, what is the most important revelation that you've ever had? What is the most important thing that you could give someone else? And he said, simple, that God is good. That is the foundation. Because if you don't believe that, it's going to freeze your gift. You will bury your gift. You will look at the future with great foreboding. You're, you're going to look at your past with a hurt heart. Because the lenses through which you evaluate things are the wrong lenses. I'm telling you, God is better than you realize. God is better than you He's better than I realize. I'm not saying I got it figured out and you don't. I'm telling you, we got a lot to learn. But I know this much, God is good. And when we believe that, all of a sudden we find ourselves stepping out and doing things, taking risks, not because we're confident in and of ourselves alone, but we say, God, you called me, you're smarter than me, and you're good enough to back me, I'm going to step out. We begin to invest what he's given us. I'm telling you, some of you have longed for a breakthrough in your life, and the breakthrough is not going to come through some revelation about your future or about your gifting or about your abilities, it, got, it has to go back down to the taproot that God is good because out of that grows everything else. God is good. Let's raise our hands. Father, Lord, we thank you this morning. Lord, I'm asking God that you would give us a fresh revelation of your goodness and Holy Spirit, I ask that you would go to war. Lord, even release your angels in individual lives this morning to begin to go after that hard, that hardened cement of wrong theologies. Lord, forgive us for buying, biting off on wrong theology. Lord, bless those this morning that are sincere but sincerely wrong about who you really are. Lord, deliver them. God, I ask that you would help us to see you for who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give. 